going to begin this morning, Psalm 51. I'm going to read a few verses uh, out of Psalm 51, and then we're going to actually sing one more song, and then we'll get into the lesson. So when Tony comes back up in the next minute and a half, uh, don't get too excited. That's not the invitation song. That's just a part of the intro. Uh, so a lot of our, the main character we're looking at this morning is King David from the Old Testament. We're continuing a series that I started several weeks ago on dethroning these different gods and idols that tend to sneak up on us in our lives. Uh, And a lot of this is centered around the fact that we have technology everywhere and devices everywhere, and that's a good thing, but sometimes if we don't keep it in check, we can have too much noise and too many distractions, and we become too busy with life, and those become gods in and of themselves. And this morning, we're going to look at one more of those as we conclude our series, and we're going to use David from the Old Testament as our example. I'm going to begin in Psalm 51. If you know much about David, you know that he is considered, he has the title, a man after what? There you go, a man after God's own heart. So David was a good man, defeated Goliath, he was a king, and apparently he was so close to God, he received that title, a man after God's own heart. But even good people with good intentions can make mistakes. Psalm 51 was written by David after he made one of the biggest mistakes of his life. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read three verses, starting in verse 10, and you'll see, maybe, maybe you'll notice the song that we're about to sing. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Put a new and right spirit within me, Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain a willing spirit. How many of you have sung this song before? You know this song? Okay, if you've been to Camp Deer Run or been a part of any youth group event, you've probably, that was a regular part of the rotation of the songs that you would sing. Um, But maybe you're hearing it for the first time this morning. Sometimes when I sing a song, I think, oh, somebody 30, 50 years ago sat down with a pen and paper and wrote the song out, and that's where it came from. But this song that Tony is about to lead us in, this is a song, an ancient song, written a long, long time ago by David, after he makes a huge mistake with his life, and we're going to look at that mistake in just a moment. So as we sing these words and continue a time of worship, I encourage you to think about these from David's perspective, because he's not just saying things that sound nice, he's saying this at a time where he's really desperate for forgiveness, where he's desperate for a clean heart, for a new and right spirit. And I'm sure we're, we're at a place, maybe you're at a place where today you need these words, or you've been at a place where you need these words. So think about David, think about your own life, and let's sing this song, and then we'll continue our sermon. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away, 
Now we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, or we will in just a moment if you want to turn over there. And we're going to look at this story and how we got to this place where David wrote Psalm 51. Thank you, Tony, for leading us in that song. So I have an iPhone. Uh, Many of you probably do, or you have some smartphone or tablet. And my son is one years old. Uh, He's a wild man. And he went through a stage, and he's still kind of in that stage, like a lot of children, where they're really drawn towards screens. There's something mesmerizing about a screen. So he would steal my phone, or he'd steal my wife's phone, and he would, he still does this sometimes, he will run, and he's fast. He'll get the phone, and he takes off running, and I'm chasing him around the house, and he knows we're trying to get the phone from him. And there's been times where I wasn't paying attention, and Christian, my son, got my phone, And by the time I got to him, he had deleted apps, he had pulled up my email and deleted emails, he had he had been on Facebook and he's liked pictures and comments. So if I don't get on Facebook that often, but if I ever like one of your comments or pictures, there's a chance my one year old son has stole my phone and that's where it came from. Uh, He's even dialed nine one one a time or two. So I finally realized that to prevent this from happening, I could just set a password. So I set a password, and now he can't get into my phone, even if he steals my phone. Uh, But if you type in enough attempts at a different password, it will lock your phone. So my phone has been locked for several minutes, but he can't get into it anymore. But when I think about that, I just think about the fact that we just live in this world where everything can become so private if we want it to. I could set a password that only I know. And so only I would have access to this phone, to this device. Um, A part of the the vision here at Pine Tree Church of Christ is to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Christ. And if you didn't know it, we have seven commitments we want to live by. You can find those commitments probably even out on the foyer or on our website. But the fourth commitment is this, that we will be committed to nurturing the faith of young families, youth and children, while supporting the Christian family and marriage. Uh, When Jessica and I were making a decision to come here to join this church several months ago, 
Uh, We looked at those commitments and we said, yeah, we share all of these commitments. Uh, We believe in this. And this is one of those commitments uh, that we admire, that was attractive to us. We want to go to a church that's about nurturing young families and supporting marriages and children and youth group and all that goes with that. And that sounds great. But we're fighting an uphill battle, just to be honest. Not to try to be negative or depressing, but this commitment sounds great, but it is hard to do in this culture that we live in. Because, well, there's numerous reasons, and every generation has struggled, but I think it's amped up because of this omnipresent Wi-Fi and technology that we have. Not that those things are, are bad in and of themselves, but if they're not checked, if they're not put in their proper place, and that's one of the things we try to talk about in the sermon series, it can quickly get out of hand. So a few things I'm going to talk about this morning are probably a little awkward, but I think it needs to be talked about. In fact, I think that one of the things that we're going to talk about this morning as we look at the story of David is something that we would rather just ignore. Um, For most generations, if someone wanted to have access to something like pornography, they would have to actually go to a store and make a purchase. Our sons and daughters live in a culture and a time where you no longer have to do that. Because of your device, because of Wi-Fi, if you wanted to, you don't have to go to a store and make a purchase. You can have access to it anywhere at any time. And that's the culture that we live in. It's easy to ignore it or to think that everybody has good intentions and maybe like, David, you're a good person and we wouldn't do something like that. But the fact is, the percentages are high of the amount of people that are exposed to inappropriate images and videos that lead to lust and inappropriate behaviors. It's high not just amongst children and teenagers, but amongst adults and Christian adults as well. Percentages are high of the amount of children, teenagers, and adults that have unintentionally seen things while scrolling through their devices. Kids are exposed to things at a much earlier age. Um, teenagers through the media are offered a very distorted view of what a covenant romantic relationship should be. And inappropriate relationships and habits and addictions that are formed through these devices are destroying marriages. But our church, we want to nurture Christian marriages and families and children And if we want to do that, we have to be aware of the things that are going on in our culture that go against that. So that's one of the things that I'm bringing to your attention this morning that I think is important to talk about. The enemy, Satan, he teaches us that a little indulgence never hurt anyone. You can look at whatever you want to on your device, and you can cover it up and hide it up, And a little indulgence never hurts anyone, but that's a lie. That's a lie that I believe David listened to. And we're going to look at this story from 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're turning over there, we're going to begin in verse 1. The story, the scene is set for us. It was the spring of the year, a time when kings go out to battle. During the spring, the roads are now easy to pass 
to march through. In the wintertime, because of storms and other things like that, their chariots, their wheels would get stuck in the mud. It was hard to march through. So there wasn't a lot of battling that would go on in the wintertime, but in spring, that picked up. So it was a time when people would go off to war, and verse 1 tells us that David sends Joab with his men to go off to war. But look at what it says at the end of verse 1. David remained at Jerusalem. He is the leader of the army. His army, his men are going off to fight, but he doesn't go with them. Maybe he's been doing it for too long and he doesn't feel like he needs to go. Maybe he's bored. Maybe his life has become stale. He once was this fiery young man, a great leader, and now he is sending his troops off with another person named Joab, and he stays home. He stays in Jerusalem, and then in verse 2, it says it happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch. The NIV, or some of your translations may say, he got up from his bed and was walking about on the roof of the king's house. And it was there that he saw on the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. It might be tempting to look at this and say, well, poor David. Unfortunate, right? He, he goes up on the roof at the wrong time, and then he's tempted. He clicked on the wrong thing, if we were saying that in our culture. Clicked on the wrong link. But I don't think it's poor David at all. I don't think David is very innocent in what he's doing here. I think going up on the roof at that time was very intentional. He knew what he was doing. He knew that all the people, all of his men that could hold him accountable were off fighting where he should have been. He's by himself. He can go up on the roof by himself, and he knows once he goes up there what he's going to see, and he sees this woman So he wants to find out about her. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported that this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite is one of David's men who are off fighting. So she's home alone. Her husband's not there and he's not coming back for a while. So David clearly abuses his power. In verse 4, David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he lay with her. And the text is very clear to let us know that it's not, when she becomes pregnant, it's not Uriah's child. He's gone. We know she's not pregnant, and then she becomes pregnant. She returns to her house, and then verse 5, I imagine a month or two goes by, in between these verses it says, The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David makes... A big mistake. But at the time he makes the mistake, I wonder if he realized that it was a mistake. Before we get to verse 5, maybe he's thinking, I indulge myself a little bit, so what? I'm the king. Nobody's going to know about it. And then he receives word that she's pregnant. And kings were subjected to the law of Moses, just like the common people were. So David knew what this meant. He knew he was going to have to do some, what I would call, damage control. Because he doesn't want the word getting out. David behaved as if only his desires mattered. He saw something, he wanted it, and he went and he got it. He indulged himself. Several months ago, an article came out that I read. It was written by a man named Sean Chandler. Sean Chandler worked at a church in Texas... For about eight years, he was a youth minister. 
And one Sunday morning, he stood up in front of his church, and he told his church he was resigning from his position. And then he confessed to everyone that for the last several years, he has had an addiction and a dependence on alcohol. And he said his life was spiraling out of control, and he just had to step down. He had a wife, he had two kids, he was leading a church, and somewhere along the way, to cope with the stress, he started that habit, which developed into an addiction and a dependence, and his life was unmanageable. So he just confessed it. And he said his church loved him through it, they helped him go to rehab, his life is much better now, but it came to this place where he couldn't hold it in any longer. He was living in secret, and he writes this article called How a Hidden Sin Almost Destroyed My Life. And in the article, he plainly says, sin grows in secret. The reason it got out of control is because he kept it a secret, and he was able to keep it a secret. And in that article, he says that we as Christians, the way that God created us, he created us for community to rely on each other, because we need each other. And through community, we have to have safe places to confess. And once he finally confessed, he began the journey of God healing him from this habit, from this addiction that he had formed. As we read this story of David, he acts in secret. Yeah, maybe his servants know what's going on because they're the ones that actually go and get Bathsheba, but maybe they don't know the whole thing. So David thinks it's done, it's secret, I indulge myself, no big deal, but now he has to deal with the consequences. So what does he do in the rest of chapter 11? He calls for Uriah to come back from the battlefield. Uh, He says, hey, go home, spend time with your wife. And what does he do? He goes to the city gates, And Uriah won't go home because he said it's not right for my men to be off fighting and for me to be at home with my wife and eating and drinking. So he won't go home. So David tried another tactic and the next night, and that still didn't work. Uriah wouldn't go home. So David is trying his best to cover this thing up, and it's just not working. So finally he sends a letter with Uriah. I guess Uriah didn't read it. Sends it back to Joab and tells Joab to put Uriah in the front lines so that in battle, Uriah would be killed. That was David's plan. Maybe if he just dies innocently in battle because men die in battle, then I'll take Bathsheba, she'll become a wife, and then no one will know. And then at the end of chapter 11, they receive word Uriah has died in battle. So David, who knows what emotions he's going through during that time, I like to think at some point something in him told him this is wrong. Bathsheba receives word that her husband is dead. She grieves for him. And then David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. So all's well that ends well, right? That's not the end of the story. In chapter 12, the story continues. God sends a friend. God sends a guy named Nathan to come to David, and he shares with David a mashal. Mashal is a Hebrew word. On your bulletin insert, it's transliterated into English, but mashal means a parable, a riddle, a story. 
If you read through the life and teachings of Jesus, you see that he used parables and stories as a way to teach and to connect with people. So that's what Nathan does for David. And that was our scripture reading this morning. The story he tells me says there's two men in one town. One is very rich and one is very poor. And the poor man, all he has is this one lamb. And that one lamb means everything to him. It's like a family member. It even sleeps in the house with him at night. But this rich man, he has an abundance. But the rich man has friends that come visit him one night. And the rich man doesn't want to take one of his own. So the rich man takes from the poor man. The rich man takes the one lamb that the poor man had to feed his friends. When David hears that story, he burns with anger. And he says, how, how could that be? You know, this person deserves to die. And then in verse 7, very, in a very clever way, what does Nathan say? You are the man. And then it becomes clear to David, ah, he's putting it together. Just like I got really mad about this rich man taking from the poor man, that's what I've done. He's taken someone else's wife. And then he made sure that he covered the situation up, he did the damage control, and Uriah died innocently on the battlefield. And now David realizes, that's me. I am the man. I am the person that has done this. Back to Sean Chandler, the man I just told you about. In that article that he wrote, he said that, you know, we have an amazing ability as human beings to see in other people the bad choices that they make. Isn't that right? I can look at anybody's life and say, man, that choice is going to lead them down a bad road. I don't know why they did that. But he also mentions that we have blind spots about our own selves. We can see the bad choices that others make, but we have a tough time seeing the bad choices that we make, which is all the more reason why we need community, safe places of confession, and people that are willing to hold us accountable. People that will speak truth into our lives. And thankfully, David had that in Nathan. So David realizes his sin in verse 12, and he wants to know, will he ever be forgiven? You know, this is where Psalm 51 comes in. He writes it after Nathan visits him, and that's where he says, Create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit, Within me. And in verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, David is told, You will be forgiven of your sins. He's forgiven. Which that may be a message you need to hear today. Whatever you've done in the past, that God is a God of grace and forgiveness, and you're not beyond forgiveness. But the one thing that David had to live with are the consequences of his actions. He's forgiven, but it doesn't mean everything is completely done away with. He has to live with what he's done, the people that he's hurt, and the destruction that he has caused. He doesn't have to live with guilt for the rest of his life, but he does realize there's consequences to his actions. But back to chapter 11, it all started with David going up on the roof in secret to see what he could see. 
And now back to our devices in this sermon series. What David had access to by going up on the roof in his palace, pretty much anyone has access to with a device in the culture that we live in today. That's where it's dangerous. That's where trying to nurture an atmosphere where we, we love and we encourage Christian marriages and families and youth and children, while that's difficult because of what we have access to. So there's some steps that we can take. We can set up good filters on our phones. You know, I have, every week I'm emailed from something called Covenant Eyes. And I have several friends that are signed up for Covenant Eyes. And the email will tell me what they have searched in the last week. And I can hold them accountable. And if they've done a good job, I can encourage them. You know, there's different things like that that we can do to try and limit the amount of exposure that is in this culture. Uh, a huge part of this sermon series was a book written by a man named Andy Crouch. I've mentioned it every week now. The book is called TechWise Family, How to Put Technology in Its Proper Place. I guess that's the bell. I'll, i got five minutes then. <laughs> now I know uh, when it's time to wrap it up. Okay. But technology is not bad in and of itself, but it does need to be put in its proper place. And in this book, when it comes to the ever-present temptation for pornography, for images, for videos, and for even forming inappropriate relationships, that the commitment he and his family had was this, there will be no technological secrets and no place to hide our devices. So what he means by that is this. As I've already mentioned in other sermons, you know, put the devices to bed before you go to bed. Put them in a safe place in your room, and then they wake up after you do. One of the things that their family did was they shared devices, which limited the secretive nature of our devices. They shared passwords. Sorry, kids, but parents had access to their children's devices until they were grown and gone, and spouses shared each other's passwords, and could have access to each other's devices at any time. No technological secrets. That may not completely wipe away the temptation, but at least it limits the temptation. Knowing that someone else is going to look at what you've been looking at, you wipe away the secret, and the secret, the secrecy aspect of these devices is what tempts us in the first place. And that's a way that they held each other accountable. This isn't about managing sin. You know, we could, if you want to, there's always a way to find a way around it. So a lot of it comes back to your heart. What this is about, for my family, for your family, for our church family, is making sin look less and less attractive. It's not about trying to prevent ourselves here or there. We're trying to hold ourselves accountable, but we don't want sin to look attractive. We want to see the damaging nature of it. If David could see what, was, what all these decisions were going to lead to, all the pain and all the hurt, maybe he wouldn't have done it because it wouldn't have been so tempting for him. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, we can't prevent birds from flying over our head but we can prevent birds from forming a nest in our hair. 
So birds are always going to fly over your head, but it doesn't mean you let them live in your hair. And it's the same thing in this world that we live in. We try to make sin look less attractive. We hold each other accountable, and we know that people love us and will speak truths into our lives. I have another friend who is a minister, and about a decade ago, he was before he got into ministry, he was teaching at a Christian school. I won't tell you the town or anything like that, but uh, one Sunday morning, uh, he stood before the congregation he was attending, and he told them that he has had an addiction to videos and images on his device that no one knew about. And he told the congregation because he wanted to be freed from that which had enslaved him. And that day began the healing process for him. He got into a ministry called Celebrate Recovery, where other people helped hold him accountable, and then that began that healing process. But a few months later, they called him in to a meeting, and they said, we heard about what you confessed at church, and we just want you to know we're no longer going to renew your contract. So he lost his job because he confessed a sin to his church. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who has some secret sin needs to come up front and announce it. I don't think that is the appropriate place. But I think what that highlights for me is he dethroned the secret God. It was less about the addiction, and it was more about the secret that he was keeping. And there's just something about doing something in secrecy That something tells you it's okay to keep doing it then. Because no one knows. And once he dethroned that secret God, that sin became less and less attractive to him. One of the things you might notice as you study the story of David is we never read about him going back up on the roof again. He did it once. He indulged himself. There was a lot of pain that followed. And we don't read, you know, 10 years later, he goes back up on the roof because he gets bored again. That no longer was appealing to him because he saw the destruction that followed it. But the great thing is, that's not the end of the story. The story doesn't stop there with this sad, depressing ending in chapter 12. You'll notice as you study the Old Testament, all the prophets... And all these stories are all building and pointing to the arrival of the Savior of the world, of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew gives a genealogy, the very beginning of his gospel, which may sound boring to us, maybe we skip over all these names. But one of the interesting things about the genealogy of Jesus, according to Matthew, is that he mentions women, which would have been taboo. You know, usually you go, you trace the lineage through the man. But one of the family names in this lineage in in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 6 was this. And Jesse, the father of King David, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And then the names go on and it eventually builds to Jesus himself. But what we see in the genealogy of Jesus is that God can take our mess and He can still lead to good things. So what we see in the story of David and Bathsheba is the story wasn't over. 
He wasn't beyond forgiveness. Yeah, it was a messy situation, but their names are still mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. That God can forgive, God can take a messy situation, and we create a lot of mess, and He can still work through us. So if you're in a place this morning where you're thinking, no, you don't know what I've done, the type of life that I've lived, my life is really messy, God can still work through it, and God will forgive But we also have to live like David in the sense that we don't go back up on the roof anymore. That's where we have to encourage each other. This morning, we're going to sing an invitation song, and you're going to have an opportunity to respond. If you need to grab a shepherd, we'll have shepherds standing around in the back. You can come up front. We just want you to know that during this time, this is an opportunity for you to respond to the invitation. And you can do so. Why don't we stand up and continue singing?